Okay, so we are in the middle, in John 14, we're in the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having at the Last Supper, at the, at the Passover Supper, that was his Last Supper um, there, that Jesus is having with his 11 uh, apostles. And so everything we're talking about is directed at them directly. Um, and so we'll reference the fact that this, these things are spoken to them but it's pretty clear as we understand the whole story of the new covenant and of the gospel, how much of this is directed through them to us as well. Um, and so as we read through this, that'll be part of our conversation as we discuss this. But this is where we are. We're in the middle of that conversation. And remember that a big purpose of this entire conversation is to comfort his apostles because he knows what's coming and they don't. He knows that they're about to be struck, that their shepherd is about to be struck, and that like sheep, they're going to be confused and afraid, and that they're going to scatter and, be, um, and, and, and all of that, and, and they're not going to be brought back together by anything short of the resurrection, and, um, and then they will come back together, and then at some point, he will empower them in amazing ways, and we'll be looking at some of that today as we get started. In verse 15, Jesus gets this line, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Um, so I want to take a second and clarify what's going on here. Um, one of the distinctions between the, the new covenant that Jesus is ushering in through his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, the empowerment of the Spirit, is a different type of covenant relationship with his people. So in the old covenant, what we call the Old Testament, same word, covenant, testament, same word, in the old account, in the Jewish scriptures, what we have is, is we have a, 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 an if-then covenant, but it's different from what's being stated here, if-then the if then that Jesus or that God has with his people in, in the, the Israelites is an if you will obey me, then I will pour out blessings on you. Financial blessings, um, health blessings, um, that you get to stay in the land that I've given to you, that you aren't enslaved and conquered. That's the if then. If you will obey me and follow my commandments, all these awesome, cool, good things will happen. And if you don't listen to me and obey my commandments, then all types of cataclysm and tragedy and awful things are going to happen to you as you are sold into slavery, as you are abused and, in, and enslaved and killed and destroyed. That's the if-then statement that God makes with his first people, the Jews, the Israelites. The, the, all through that teaching, we see prophets and others saying, but there's a new covenant to come. There's a new covenant, a different covenant, a better covenant and so too often when we're teaching through like John 14, 15, 16, 17, if we're not, if we're not careful, we'll get sidetracked by the old one and begin to, to, to conflate them, to put them together in ways that they don't belong together. This is a great example of, of what Jesus is trying to say to you. Notice, this isn't if you this, then I that. That would be a, that would be a, a contractual covenant, that, a, 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 a you and me um, covenant type of relationship. No, this is an identity statement. This isn't a covenant at all. This is an identity statement. This is Jesus saying, if you this, then you this, which is very different. If this is who you are, then this is what you'll do. If this is what you do, then this is what you'll do. That's how this works. He's going to take two ideas that we so often as humans divide out, and he's going to say they're inextricable. You can't divide them out, and that is the concept of love and obedience. And we so want those to be divided out. We want this because we like love and we don't like obedience very much, unless we're the one being obeyed. Then we love it. But if it's us having to obey somebody, we're not such huge fans. We want Jesus to love us. We don't want to have to obey him. That's, that's something we want to divide those out. You're not going to find that in Jesus' teaching. 
So here you get, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's that simple. It's, it's, not, it's not all that super complicated. This is an identity statement. If you really love me, if that's who you are, then that's what you'll be striving to do, is try to keep my commandments. Now, this week, um, Bob Livesay sent me a, a talk that he had heard by Tim Keller, and, uh, and so I was listening to it, and Tim was kind of making comments on the culture, which I thought was, he did a, I thought was pretty cool. At one point, he said that his wife told him, maybe it's time for us to start teaching like Jesus did in this format. You have heard it said, but I say, and we need to, we need to start doing that more and more often. You have heard it said, but I say. And so I'm stealing that concept based on what we've been talking about the last few weeks about this idea of authority and autonomy. You have heard it said that real power is found in personal truth, my truth, which is nonsensical, but personal truth, personal purpose, and personal autonomy. But I say that purpose and truth come in Christ, and that any power that we have submitted to him is where real purpose lies. It's where we will find real purpose. You want to find significance? It is living and loving in the family of God. This means doing it his way, his commandments. You've heard it said that reality is found in here. That, real, that the real problem is people who say that there is truth out there. Those, those are the problem makers. Those are the, those are the ones creating conflict. Those are the ones creating division. When they say, no, no, there are certain things right and certain things wrong, that's the real problem because real truth, my truth, is found inside. Real purpose is found inside. Reality is found here. Out here is just how you feel about me, but in here is what is the truth about me. That's that there's the, this idea that there's an external source for life and truth and purpose. That is the huge error. That's what you've heard. But I say that there is a source outside of us, and when we find ourselves in a real mess and every aspect of our life seems to be falling apart, that external source is what will stand firm. Part of why we need it. You've heard it said autonomy is a good replacement for authority. But I say that you are being lied to. One, autonomy can only offer an illusion of safety. In a mixed audience, with all the different histories and traumas that people in this room have faced, I, can't, I would not even try to go into the details that as a therapist I have heard example after example after example of people who, who declare their autonomy, that this is the way it's going to be, that I cannot be shaken and I cannot be moved, and then someone strips that away from them, whether it's an abuse or assault or something else very destructive, and the, the illusion of autonomous power is taken from them in an instant, and everything falls apart for them. When the truth is, we find value, true value, in the, in the authority of a God who is God greater than we are God. If we love him, we will obey him. We will listen to him. And this is the wise command of a Lord who knows best and who loves us. This is what's, this is what's wild. This is why I realized as I thought about that, that where the blame has to at least partially lie for a culture that reaches this place is with us fathers. It has to. When you have a line like, this is, we don't want to obey or listen to the wise commands of a Lord who knows us best and loves us best. That's obviously something that a father is supposed to exemplify, is supposed to live out. Then my children would say, I may not like it, but he knows best and he loves me best. Now, unlike God, I could actually be wrong. It happens. 
Don't tell them, but it does happen every once in a while. But, but still, the fact that, that someone would say, how do I understand that? That there's such a thing as power and authority that's better for me to listen to the power and authority than to listen to myself. That's hard for us. We need examples of authority who live that out well. No one's going to be perfect. This, is a, this has become such a, a big deal, this idea that I need to declare myself independent of any authority. This is now a statement. By the way, it's, it doesn't change reality. I'm, I'm bummed to tell you. Like, declaring yourself independent of something doesn't mean you're independent of it. That's not, that's just a good, that's just, we, we, America discovered that a couple hundred years ago, right? We signed a document. See, now we're free. Oh, then there's that whole war thing that has to happen. Like, there's, it just declaring something is not sufficient to make something true. One of the things that Keller mentioned is, the song, is Elsa's song in, uh, in the movie Frozen, <coughs> which I will confess I had never listened to um, except the, the let it go part. Um, and so the, the rest of it, I had, I had no idea what it said and was not even interested. So, but here's what's fascinating. He pointed out the indoctrination of personal autonomy being preached in this song. Um, if you've never heard it, here you go. This, is, this isn't even subtle. Like, I love the fact that there used to, at least they used to be subtle with kids' indoctrination. No, not now. Um, so here's what she says. This is, she's always been told, quote, be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, and don't let them know. A couple lines later, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. Wow. That's... That's kind of a declaration against the authorities, isn't it? No right, no wrong, no rules. Personal autonomy, no one gets to tell me anything. Well, so when Keller mentioned this in this talk, and he references this, as, and, and it's kind of making fun of it, he's like, and, and she gets a really cool wardrobe change in the middle of it, which is nice. And so, but here's what's wild. The only song in that movie that I liked that I thought was clever was Olaf's song. Now, I, I liked Olaf, and I thought Olaf was a brilliant character And in my opinion, his song delivers the truth about this exact message. So those of you who have seen it, so you see Olaf is a snowman, okay? So he's a snowman. And so Olaf has this brilliant song in which he sings, and this is part of the vision that he has, he sings about how awesome it's going to be when he finally gets to experience what he always wanted to experience, and that is? Summer. He can't wait to experience summer. He can't wait to be tan, for example. He references tanning. So... This is something, the hot and cold are both so intense, put them together, it just makes sense, right? It does. It's, this is how this is going to work out. How do you know this, this is going to go well for Olaf? Because he says it's going to. He is declaring it. I, I, don't, I don't care if, if this is a humanist thing for you or a health and wealth teaching for you, declaring something is not going to change the truth. I'm sorry, it isn't. And so here you have Olaf. The best line in the entire movie is this line from the song. Winter's a good time to stay in and cuddle, but put me in summer and I'll be a happy snowman. (laughs) Right? That's just brilliant. Here's the deal. You just keep telling yourself that, right? This is, the two songs are the same song. Now that wasn't on purpose. That's us reading the parable into it. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. Yep, just like a snowman in summer. That's exactly how that's going to work out for you. It's, there's still going to be rights and wrongs, and there's going to be rules, and they're going to impose themselves on you. That's how the universe works. 
You don't believe me? Try being a snowman and try getting a suntan. That will work out the way it's going to work out no matter what you claim. I claim I'm not, I, I mean, I'm going to be a happy snowman. No, you'll actually be exactly what that line was supposed to end with, right? A puddle. There are those, there are some things that are true whether we like it or believe it or want them or prefer them. It's, it's a, it's, this is exactly what Jesus is teaching us in this. These things that Jesus is teaching here at the end, his last chance to teach his disciples here before the crucifixion, he's going to come back to, again to certain things that are just true. And this is true. This is, this is who he is. Notice Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. We quote it all the time around here. Jesus came to them and said, notice what it starts with. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. That's it. Oh, no, no, there's no rules for me. Listen, there's someone to whom all authority has been given, and it wasn't you. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We're going to get to that line here in a second. That's a, that's a, that's a parent line. That's a line of love. That's an adoption line. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Verse 16. As if all this wasn't shocking enough, then Jesus says, what well, must have just totally floored the disciples. Totally floored these guys. They were barely wrapping their brain around the idea that Jesus Christ was God. They were barely starting to get that, I think. They were, they were just starting to understand the divinity of Jesus Christ. The, the, the second person of the Trinity, though they wouldn't have used that language. That Jesus Christ, that, oh wait, what you're saying to know the Father is to know you. To know God is to know you. Before Abraham was, I am. Like They're wrapping their brain around that. And in the midst of this, they're just now maybe starting to get this. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Another here in the Greek, the same kind. Another of the same kind. Meaning another of the same kind as me. Another of the same kind as Jesus Christ. Another, this is where we get the doctrine of what's called the doctrine of pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. And we're troubled by the Holy Spirit in the evangelical world sometimes. Now, there's, there's some there's authentic reasons for that. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is referred to as the shy member of the Trinity, meaning that the Holy Spirit does not draw a lot of attention to himself. Um, the Holy Spirit is always sending us to Christ and sending us to the Father. And, but but there's, there's something very important here. The Holy Spirit has been involved from the beginning, quite literally. Um, we see him at creation. I'll show you that. Just, you'll see that in just a second. We see him at the incarnation, Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has been involved in every part of this. He's involved in the ministry with Jesus Christ. Again, we're going to watch a video in a second that shows that. He's involved in the conviction of the world, of the bringing of life itself, the very energy of God, the relationship between the Father and the Son. There are multiple names for this person all through Scripture. This is our clear introduction to the book of John. Sometimes he's called the Holy Spirit, literally, or the pure Spirit, the clean Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth. Which of this is name, what is title, all that kind of stuff, we don't always know. It seems to be that the name is the Spirit of God. This is God's own Spirit. You and I have a Spirit. God the Father has God the Father, God the Son have a Spirit. 
The difference is with us, that's just, it's merely an extension of who we, of our identity and our personality in regards to God. Apparently, the Holy Spirit has a personality, a personhood. We'll talk more about that of his own. We see the special acts in the Jewish accounts all through the Hebrew Scripture where, where the Holy Spirit falls on someone or invests in someone and they gain some kind of special influence. Samson, Gideon, Jephthah, David, Othniel, Saul, and many others when we read through the Old Testament. We see people listening to and quoting the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, which is mind-boggling to me. It's common in the book of Acts for someone to say, the Holy Spirit said, quote, that always strikes me as a relationship with the Holy Spirit that I can't fathom. The willingness to put the Holy Spirit's word into quotes, I don't think I'm that good of a, tran- of, of a receiver. He's plenty good at transmitting. I'm just not that good of a receiver. You'll probably never hear me say something more than like, I think maybe the Spirit is leading me in this way. Um, and even that scares me a little bit. Because um, I, 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 not that I limit the Spirit, but me. I think I'm going to talk about in a second. I think really as we engage with the Holy Spirit, the reason the evangelical world, that sometimes I think we're afraid to engage more with the Holy Spirit is a few things. One, um, there is a great mystery surrounding the Holy Spirit. We don't have a lot of information. And especially as Westerners, we like systems We like to know where to put things. We like categories. We like taxonomy. Oh, God the Father. Here's the roles of God the Father. God the Father does this, 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 and this. That would be really neat and clean. Even that's not neat and clean. God the Son, a little less clean. This, 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 and this. But the the Son is always referencing as though he's doing the same things the Father is doing identically, and that's challenging for us. The Spirit, we have even more mystery about. We would call it confusing, but it's not confusing. We just don't know. That just means ignorant. We are ignorant, and we don't like that. And so we, we always want to create a system, and this is what it's going to always look like, and he's always going to play by the same rules, and he's always going to do the same thing every time, and that's just not the, how the Holy Spirit works. He is a person with a relationship with us. So I think that's one. One is we, we don't get it, and so we don't like it. We don't like what we don't know, and so we, we kind of rebel and resist what we don't know. Two, I think we're afraid. I think there's a, there's a, a movement within sometimes the evangelical world where the truth is our, our healthy respect and, quote, fear of God turns into a fear of God's motives. We don't understand who he is. I'm going to explain some examples here for a second. But the Holy Spirit's role, Jesus exemplifies through a word here, paraclete, someone who comes alongside. So I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that. Let me share with you a little bit about this concept. Um, like, for example, if you're in a legal situation, this is the way this word is used. It's a very powerful, commonly used word in Greek. It can be used, for example, like for a legal assistant or, or a lawyer. So if you, if you have to go into a courtroom situation, listen, if you've ever had to do that, no one knows and understands how the court system works. When are you supposed to stand, sit, who are you supposed to speak to? Are you allowed to object? That's all you always want to do, right? If you ever like defend your own traffic ticket or something, you're there just to at some point and go, Your Honor, I object. Like, like sit down. That's not when you do that. Like a... Okay, and so you just, like, we need, we need an advocate, we need an attorney, we need someone who stands for us to tell us what to do, to guide us through the situation. And a really good East Texas model is that of a guide. And so when, when I grew up, um, we used to raise quail, and, and so the way we, we would raise quail to then sell to hunting preserves, and then they would have hunters come in and, and hunt the quail. And so here's what we do, we would literally sell them the quail, and then they would go take the quail right before the hunt, take them out of the pen, and, and the guide would go out into the woods and find a bush and would take the quail out of the pen and hold it in their hands and do this. I remember us doing this, like this. And then you would set the quail at the base of the bush. Now listen, that quail's not going anywhere. 
It's, it's like punch drunk. I mean, it has no idea what's, it's afraid to move. It's so dizzy and drunk, it just sits there and gets still because that's what it feels safe doing. Then the guide brings the hunter with the dogs to that bush. The dog smells the quail that is exactly where the guide knows that it is. And then they, they kick the quail up and it flies and the hunter then shoots the quail feeling like he's accomplished something, right? But the truth is the guide took care of every detail. Like the guide knew what was going on from beginning to ending. Listen, I bought the bird. I, I traumatized the bird. I then put the bird at the base of the plant. I then chased the bird up into the air and you shot the bird. Man, you are the mighty hunter, right? But that's the... That's, or if you have a fishing guide, they take you to the spot where they're pretty sure there's fish, and you throw them in the water, like, and there's fish. Look at that. Like, this is the Holy Spirit. He is a guide. He knows what's going on. He understands the systems. He understands how the life works, how the world works. He's there from beginning to end. He gets it. And then we get to have some part in it and feel like we accomplished something. That's really not a bad picture of the role of the helper in our lives, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. Um, Wayne Broderick, who's our friend, um, Dr. Broderick, when I was talking to him, I got to talk to him about this, and he said, he said the most, the coolest thing he's found, and so follow me on this, is this idea that there's a, a Roman soldier who, um, who is, has a problem. He's a discipline problem. So the centurion, the, the um, sergeant major, if you will, is going to spend a day with him, okay, to help him learn to be a better soldier. And so he goes through this hardship all day. It just has this horrible, awful day under the... Under the, the um, leadership of this, this sergeant major centurion. At the end of the day, he's exhausted, he's worn down, he's, he's beat up, he's just, he's just toasted by the sun and all that. And so here he is, walking in the last bit, running in, in his armor in the sun, and here's what the, the word paraclete is used for the way that the sergeant major runs on the sun side of the soldier to block the rays of the sun from finishing off the soldier to put him into the shade so he can finish out his discipline. It is that narrow. But what a brilliant picture of that even in discipline, even in hardship, that the Holy Spirit is walking alongside of us, knowing what we can take, how far can we go, knowing how far to push us to help us learn and grow without crushing us, just breaking us, not crushing us. What a beautiful picture of even in that, this word paraclete, it includes all of that. And that's the word that John uses, that Jesus uses to describe the work of the whole, who the Holy Spirit is, someone who comes alongside, an advocate, a substitute who substitutes victory for defeat, who illuminates and who inspires. We talk about more part of why we're doing small group training, small group leader training in the fall and spring and fall and spring probably, um, is because we believe in this notion, what's called peripatetic learning, meaning someone who teaches as they come alongside. There are great limits to how you can grow in here like this. Face-to-face -face teaching of a crowd is greatly limited. There's only so far that, that I can lead you under these type of conditions or that you can be led under these type of conditions. It's, just, it's, the, it's the most limited form of this where we learn and grow and really learn and grow, where character change happens, is when we come alongside another person and walk with them through life. And so we want to train up people. We want that to be the, the, just the, the normal operation of this church, is that people know where to find someone to come alongside them in a small group or at the individual level, because that's how healthy churches grow. That's how healthy Christians grow. So we push that more and more because this idea, the paraclete, someone who comes alongside.
is what we need. Okay, so Jesus says, the helper, verse 17, even the, whole, even the spirit of truth, that's who he's talking about, that's the helper, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Again, I love the idea that, the, that the, the Holy Spirit is already known to the disciples. They just don't know they know him. They don't realize they know him. He has brought them power and courage, and, and he's blocked the sun for them many times without them even knowing it. The soldier probably doesn't appreciate the, the fact that the sergeant major is blocking the sun from them. They don't realize that that's intentional. All they know is, is the hardship of what they're facing, the challenges of what they're facing. You know it, but you don't realize it. And the radical alteration of their lives is going to come through the resurrection and then even more so through the investment of the Holy Spirit in them. He wants to make this totally clear to them. This Holy Spirit, this Spirit, this Helper, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now you can imagine, I can stay there, I could camp on that verse forever and ever, but I, I'm not going to. The difference between, though, a contract and an adoption is what's being talked about here. This isn't some contractual relationship. This is the new covenant. The old covenant was about a contractual relationship. The new covenant is about an adoption. You're now part of the family. The trepidation, the essence, the power, the grace, the sacrifice, the joy of being family. Not just a member of the staff, but a member of the family. He is still comforting them. They don't understand the idea yet of being sealed by the Holy Spirit. But that's the idea. Jesus Christ here is claiming them as his own. You are mine. You're mine in the way an adopted child is, is the parents. Mine. I claim you. I make you my own. Verse 19. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will. You will see me. Because I live, you also will live. This talk of life and that how he's engaging the Holy Spirit in this talk of life. Um, I want to give you a resource. There's a resource called the Bible Project. <clears throat> that you can find online. Excellent podcast series um, and excellent series of videos. They're free. You can look them up on YouTube. Um, and they have an, this video series um, and they do great work. Now, again, as I, I would say, obviously a four-minute video cannot replace going to church, going to Bible study, studying scripture, learning theology. But they do such a good job that very often the concepts we wrestle with and what I, I want to show you their video on the Holy Spirit in which they really emphasize what the root concept of the Holy Spirit as the power of God being expressed is like. Um, but I want to give you this resource so that you can look this up in your own personal study. Look these up as well. So if you've got that, go ahead. If you've ever heard the phrase, the Holy Spirit, and you want to know what it means, where do you start? Well, you have to start on page one of the Bible, where the uncreated world is depicted as this dark, chaotic place. But then above the chaos, God's Spirit is there, hovering, ready to bring about life and order and beauty. Okay, but... What is God's spirit? Yeah, so the spirit is the way the biblical authors talk about God's personal presence. The Hebrew word is ruach. Ruach. Yeah, you got to clear your throat at the end. So what is it? Well, ruach can refer to a number of different things, but what they all have in common is energy. Energy, how so? So there's an invisible energy that makes the clouds move or the tree branches sway. Right, wind. So in Hebrew, that's ruach. Okay. Now take a big breath. <sighs> So you feel that inside you? Yeah, the air? Well, specifically the energy, right? The vitality in your body that you get from breathing deeply, that too is ruach. And this is the same word used in the Bible to describe God's personal presence. Just like wind and breath are invisible, God's spirit is invisible. 
Wind is powerful, and so God's spirit is powerful. And just as breath keeps us alive, so God's spirit sustains all of life. Yeah, Ruach. Now, as we continue on in the story of the Bible, we see God's Ruach giving special empowerment to people for specific tasks. The first person in the Bible this happens to is Joseph. God's spirit enables him to understand and interpret dreams. And then it happens to this guy named Bezalel, and he's an artist. God's spirit empowers him with wisdom and skills. He's given creative genius to make beautiful things in the tabernacle. And we also see God's Ruach empower a group of people called the prophets. They're able to see what's happening in history from God's point of view. That's exactly right. And here's the problem as the prophets saw it. While God's Ruach had created a really good world, humans have given in to evil. They've unleashed chaos into it through their injustice. A new type of disorder. Yes, and the prophet said the spirit would come, just like in Genesis 1, but now to transform the human heart, to empower people to truly love God and others. How will this new act of God's spirit happen? Well, centuries pass, and we are introduced to Jesus. And at the beginning of his mission, there's this beautiful scene where Jesus is being baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. Yeah, the sky opens up and God's spirit comes and rests on him like a bird. The story is saying that God's spirit is empowering Jesus to begin the new creation. And we see this happening when he heals people or forgives their sins. He's creating life where there once was death. Now, Israel's religious leaders oppose Jesus and they eventually have him killed. But even here, God's spirit is at work. The earliest disciples of Jesus, who saw him alive from the dead, said it was God's energizing spirit that raised Jesus. This is the beginning of new creation. Yes, and it's still going. When Jesus appeared to his closest followers, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And soon after that, the spirit powerfully comes on all of his disciples. So that they can become a part of this new creation and share the good news and learn how to live by the energy and influence of God's Spirit. And so today, the Spirit is still hovering in dark places. Yes, pointing people to Jesus, transforming and empowering them so they can love God and others. And the Christian hope is that the Spirit is going to finish the job. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a new humanity, living in a new world that's permeated with God's love and life-giving Spirit. So the, um, obviously, like I said, there's limits to what you can do in a video, the presentation of the spirit moving around. There's a sense in which the spirit moves, but of course the spirit is also omnipresent. The spirit is in all places at the same time. Um, there's this, that sense of the energy um, and the life-giving force of who the Holy Spirit is that doesn't make the Holy Spirit not a person, not a personality, not having something to engage there. It tells us, for example, in Ephesians 4, Um, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, the Holy Spirit can experience things like grief. This This is a person and a personality who has feelings, emotions, and engages with us at the personal level. Um, C.S. Lewis would often describe, so God the Father begets God the Son, and when you beget something, you beget something like yourself. An eagle begets an eagle, a raccoon begets a raccoon, a god begets a god. So there's this eternal begetting of the Son. When you create, you create an image of yourself, but not yourself. Man creates a statue, an image of man. God creates man, an image of God. Um, That kind of helps us understand Lewis trying to explain that stuff. Well, Lewis's thought 
was that the Holy Spirit is essentially the, the relationship, the power of the relationship between the Father and the Son as a third entity of the divine trinity. Then the same way you would say with a friendship or a marriage, there is me, there is my wife, Ginger, and then there is our marriage. And there's a sense in which the marriage itself takes on its own personality. Well, C.S. Lewis's opinion was, and I don't know if he's right, again, this is a mystery, but C.S. Lewis's opinion was that the relationship between the Father and the Son automatically generates this third person, their spirit, the spirit of God, which is a great picture. Again, Lewis is a pretty smart guy. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of people like that. It may be right. But the truth is the spirit leaves us with a lot of mystery. I'm going to go back to my statement, though, that the mystery is only part of what we don't like about the spirit. Part of what we don't like about the spirit is that we're afraid of God. And I don't mean that healthy fear of God, the respect of God, but a fear. We end up saying really goofy things like, well, don't pray for patience because then God will put someone in your life that requires you to learn patience. Under what conditions would we not pray for God to develop virtue in our lives through the power of the Spirit? Well, if we're afraid of him, if we think, if we think the Holy Spirit is more like um, maybe God, God you know, using a magnifying glass to burn ants, if that's what we think God is like, that he's out to get us. If we, when we say things like, man, don't ever, say, don't ever tell God not to send you to Africa because then that's exactly where he'll send you. Well, if that's where God wants to send you, that means that's the best option for you. Now listen, you may die in Africa. You may starve in Africa. You may get deathly sick in Africa or wherever it is that God sends you, whether that's here or there. Eventually, we all die of something, but the Holy Spirit leading us doesn't mean that it's going to be comfortable, which would, by the way, if you're comfortable, you don't need a comforter. If you have all you need, you don't need help. Of course, he's going to lead us into situations where we need help. He's our helper. He's then going to help us in the midst of that. That's, that's part of the experience of the Holy Spirit. Is that he's, blo- he's, he's, he's blocking out the sun, but that doesn't mean he's not disciplining us to grow as well. I think we're afraid to listen because we're afraid of what the Spirit might tell us. Um, a very quick version. Again, I tell you, I'm really nervous. I'm always nervous about making proclamations. Sometimes, I think the third reason we're afraid of the Spirit is because so many people abuse the concept of the Spirit. There are whole movements in Christianity that they abuse the leadership, I think, of the Spirit in the way they want to lead as people. Or they think that, that the Holy Spirit has certain exact hoops that everybody has to jump through and that creates all kinds of error. Um, but, but I think most of us as Christians, if we would get still and get quiet and listen, the Spirit would speak to us. Now, audible, I don't know, that's, that's not common, but, but through, a, through a sense of, of impression or leadership or guidance is what many Christians describe, um, a sense that God is leading me in a certain direction. There are lots of these. And, and if you listen, the Spirit leads in these ways, I believe, will lead us if we're listening to the sound. But, but you end up with all kinds of interesting ideas. I, I think a, a quick, uh, years and years ago, there was a place I wanted to go speak. Um, they finally invited me to come speak. I, I, I was in a better at, at it than I have been at other times in life of praying for God to guide me. And when they, the, I felt very clearly like the Spirit was saying, no, don't go. You have to tell them no. And, and I was really frustrated with that because I'd been waiting for years to get the opportunity to go speak here. It's a really cool program in California, and I was going to be speaking the first week of May. And, and I felt like the answer was no. I called the guy back, and, I was, and by the way, they were famous for once you, if you told them no once, they were never going to invite you back. And I still called and said, I feel like God is leading me to tell you no. I'm pretty upset about it. Um, I'm pretty mad at God about it, but I feel like that's what God's leading me to do. And so I told him no. This was in about September um, in December, um, I called him back around December. I called him back and said, 
Um, hey, is my friend man named Darren? I said, Darren, I now know why God wouldn't let me come. And he goes, I'm interested to hear this. And I said, well, we have a baby that's due the first week of May that we didn't know about when I told you no. And uh, it would have been a real bummer to have to, to cancel that. And knowing me, I would have tried to be like, ah, he probably won't come that week. That's Holland, by the way. Um, I probably would have been like, oh, he probably won't come that week. It'll be safe for me to go. And then he was born May 1st. Then, so he said, well, that's why you think God told you not. But the real reason God told you no was because I just literally this week had a speaker cancel. And the only week he can come is the first week of May. Is there any chance you can come the last week in December? And I was like, in fact, I'm not even asking God. I'm just saying yes. I'm not going to pray. I'm just, the answer is yes. Um, uh, the, the idea, though, is that we're afraid because we don't really trust God to lead us in what is best, which is understandable. He's a, he's a God who's not always listening to our instructions, right? We have personal autonomy. He should do whatever we want, whatever we think is best for us, but he's not going to. Um, if you want to go look at it, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16 has a lot of details here. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go into all of it. But this idea that, that the natural man cannot listen to the spirit, only in our spiritual person as we grow and learn and develop the disciplines like, for example, of being still and quiet and listening, do we get to be led by the spirit. That we develop the mind of Christ. Christ listened for the spirit at all times. That's why he would say, now isn't my time, and now is my time, and now isn't my time, and now is my time. And, and, and he, because he was listening perfect to the leadership of the spirit, and I think we're afraid of being still and we're afraid of listening. Verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and check out this last phrase, and I in you. That's amazing. We're going to use that as our transition into next week, but I want to read all these verses again real quick so that you feel the power of them put together as Jesus is telling his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more and you will see me because I live, you will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Jesus is telling his disciples, you don't ever have to be alone. No matter how lonely you may feel on this earth, you always have a place to call home, and that's with me. You always have someone who loves you right there with you. Others fail you, and you fail others, but I will be right there with you. He tells his disciples that he chooses them, he adopts them, and he will abide with them, and, and that they will live forever so long as he does. Doesn't that have a marriage feel to it still? that so long as we both shall live, which is forever. You have heard it said that there is no God, or that he is far away, or that he doesn't have requirements on you as a husband, or you as a wife, or a father, or a mother, or a child, or a citizen of heaven. But I would say you have been lied to. I say he loves and chooses and adopts and resurrects and abides. That's the God who Jesus is introducing us to. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the power of your word. Help us to know the lies of the world. They cannot understand your spirit. Your spirit, spirit, you are a mystery to us. We struggle at times on how to engage with you, which I suspect you're fine with so long as we're engaging with the Father and obeying the Son.
Spirit, empower us in that, to listen and to be led by you. Help us in a world full of distractions to get still every once in a while and to listen and see what you have for us, that you would challenge us and grow us. Father, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would teach us to listen to your will in your perfect knowledge, to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, even as he covers us and leads us and protects us and comes alongside of us to be worked on. And Lord, I pray that we would be led well by him. And Lord, I pray that you would, for the sprinkling of, the son, of your son, for the sprinkling of his blood, for obedience to him, Lord, I pray that we would live out these lives. In his name we ask it all, amen.